But I wonder how many people here actually like surprise parties. I used to like surprise parties, and then something happened. Here's what happened. Many years ago, my brother-in-law from England and his wife called me up, and they said, hey, we'd love to come to California and vacation. And I said, that'd be great. We'd love to see you. We'd we'll go to Yosemite. We'll go to Tahoe. This will be fantastic. And they said, wonderful. By the way, we'd love to keep this a surprise for Vicky. Like, don't tell her that we're coming. I'm like, great. That sounds really fun. So I started to do the planning. And then I realized that what happens when you're planning the surprise, you're now embarked on some big path of deceit. Because I had to make this thing up for Vicky. We're, what kind of, we're going to go on a vacation. Now, I can't tell you who, and I can't necessarily tell her where, so I make up a destination. And who are we going with? Not just ourselves, we're going, some, we're going to go visit some people. Another fib. And so this sort of chain of deceit and chain of fib starts to build and build, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what, you know, I'm, I'm, my, com my discomfort is growing at this surprise vacation that I've been planning. Ultimately, uh, I made up, it just got bigger. We're going down to Southern California. We're going to meet three different friends. Vicky's canceling the paper. She's buying house presents for everybody. It's just getting, it's growing, at, you know, like, like a weed. Uh, eventually, uh, the final fib was to pick up Vicky's, cousin, Vicky's brother and his wife. We have to go up to the airport, which engendered another fib on my part. We were going to go pick up work colleagues instead of uh, the cousins. And so we get up there, or instead of the in-laws, we get up there, and uh, my brother-in-law, Mark, Vicky's brother, pops out from behind that you're here at the airport. So like, okay. So... Vicky was surprised, pleasantly so. I felt bad and had to repent a lot for this like string of deceit that I'd created. So if you're on the planning end, it could be challenging. And if you have to do a whole bunch of you know, deceit, then that's not good. But the person who experiences the surprise, they are the blessed ones. They're the ones who go, oh, this is great. Think of all the planning that went into that. Think of the regard that was shown. Think of the love that somebody had for me to plan this big thing. And when I think of the gospel text that Cindy just read about, about the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan River by John the Baptist, there's so much that is theologically rich and, and dense for us to understand God because he's fully on display, the fullness of God. He's, he's Jesus but he's also the spirit that comes down and the voice from heaven, the father, saying, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. You know, that could be a multi-week sermon. And, and it's easy just to think that, that we should focus on that. But if we do, we lose the surprise that this is for our benefit, that the things that, that are told to us in Matthew's gospel are as rich for us as they were for Jesus at the time. And so I want to spend our time unpacking that to some extent. This will actually be a two-part message. So the first part is to look at when, when Jesus goes, he's baptized by John, but then it says immediately he came out of the water. There's so much that's pregnant with meaning in that phrase. And then the second phrase we'll look at, and then the Spirit descended on him like a dove. There's such a picture of anointing. We'll look at that. The, the third part we'll have to wait for next week, which is how God expresses his love for him.
But I think if we understand that, we see how much the Lord has planned for us, just like a surprise vacation, just like a surprise party, through this time. So let's look at, just look, I, I love the text. I, I'll read the salient verses, are 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Uh, just to, we do need to cover a few basic things that are going on here. Some of you might be coming in wondering, okay, Jesus is baptized. Not only what does that mean, but even before we get to what it means, why is Jesus being baptized? I mean, I thought baptism was for people that needed to repent. And you're right. But Jesus doesn't need to repent. And Jesus says to John, his cousin, he, he says, let it be done so to fulfill all righteousness. What is Jesus saying in that moment? He is saying that he is announcing and pronouncing the mission that he's been given by his heavenly father. This is the beginning of his public ministry. He will go on for some three years after this, teaching and healing and raising people from the dead and facing various oppositions. This is the beginning of that. And ultimately, he will go to Calvary on our behalf. And then he'll be raised to life. And so, but this is the start. This is the inauguration. This is the beginning. And so, he must be baptized to fulfill the expectation of purity, of cleanliness. This is what baptism means. This is what, think back to the Old Testament, the purification rituals. When somebody was freed from their sins, they were told and commanded to go and wash themselves. Jesus is doing that to be a good observant Jew, to, to say that he is in the line of the messianic expectation. But he is also saying through that, that he is, he is the perfect human in modeling what we need to do and how we need to be. He will command us to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit just before he ascends into heaven. And so that's part of what's going on is that there's this, this sense of Jesus being immediately lifted out of the water. And as, as he's doing so, he's declaring this is a messianic revelation. This is, he's the servant of God. God the Father declares him, this is my beloved son. These were expectations from the Old Testament, that if we have a Messiah, these would be things that he would be doing. Interestingly enough, in, in Jewish theology, in Jewish scripture, water is not only used for purification, but it's also a symbol of chaos. Remember that the waters are covering the land before God, covering the earth before God creates land. Remember that Noah, the flood, is a chaotic event and a destructive event. The Red Sea represents an existential threat to the Jews that are Israelites that have been freed from Egypt. In each of those cases, God makes a way for the people. And so the culmination of God making a way of being the ultimate Savior for all of us, not just the, the Israelites now, but for all mankind. You heard in the collect that it's talking about all nations. The Magi, which is the, the, the Magi mentioned in Matthew, begins Epiphany. January 6th is the beginning of Epiphany with the reading of the Magi's visitation to the infant Jesus. And the Magi are Gentiles. And in that, God is declaring that the salvation that comes from Jesus, comes through the line of Judah, comes from David, is meant not just for the Jews, but for everyone. So that's our little theological background to explore what it means to come up out of the water for us. 
is, is it means to follow Jesus in that baptism. It, it, to say to, to the Lord, because he's, by declaring himself the Messiah, very soon he'll start to be gathering disciples. Very soon he'll be, he'll be inviting people to join him. And the start of that, when we come to it now 2,000 years later, we should already sense the invitation that comes to us. What is that invitation? It is to follow Jesus, to give our lives wholly to him. Not him just as the one who frees us from our sin or has forgiven us for our sin, but also the one who gives us a life of purpose and of fulfillment and a life that when we get to the end of it, through faithful following, not necessarily perfect faithful, perfect following, but faithful following, we will look back and say, Lord, I don't regret a single thing that I ever did for you out of obedience. I thought that the things that I was going through that were very difficult, super hard, I didn't know how I could get through them. But I am so glad that you enabled me to persevere. I am so glad that when I had that thing that I just thought was intractable, an attitude that was hard to shake, a sin pattern that was just seemingly often overwhelming, you gave me the victory. And I don't regret for a single day, now that I can look back on it, that I let that go. This will be part of the reward for those that live their life in faithfulness to the Lord who says, you've been baptized into death, my death, so that you'll be raised into life. Paul writes this to the Romans. And this, again, when we see Jesus' baptism, we can think very quickly to our own, I hope, because Paul says, don't you know, Romans, that you, uh, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So think of you're on the banks of the Jordan, you're watching Jesus be baptized, and you're thinking with your Christian mind, this is the start this is where my new life begins. This is where the encumbrance and this slavery of sin in our lives or our slave, enslavement to sin now begins to become loose by what Jesus is doing. There should be an excitement that builds, even a fear of wonder how we're going to follow him throughout this. But the life that he's going to call his disciples to is the life he calls us to, one of purpose and one of fulfillment and one that we would never regret some of you know Jim Elliott. He, was, uh, he, along with some other men, were martyred in the 50s. They were reaching and trying to reach indigenous peoples in Ecuador for the gospel. And they tried to cultivate friendship, and they thought things were going well. But at a crucial time when they landed, they were, they were killed. And Jim Elliott said this before in his writings. He kept a journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The baptism of Jesus, and by extension, the one that we take when we come to him, is an invitation to that kind of life. But it is also an invitation to his church. This was the New Testament reading that Kate read. It's in Acts 10. Acts is all about the birth of the church and what that looks like. And, and Luke, as he writes this, says, he says, you know, he's quoting Peter, what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went on doing good and healing all who were under his power because God was with him. 
See, Peter is taking that experience and that message and he's saying, this is what the church's legacy and heritage is. This is what we need to bring into the world. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, but he and the Spirit and God the Father are all equipping us, his church, to do likewise, to go and to pray and to go and share the gospel, to go and to expect healing, to go and to provide justice where it is needed, to advocate for policies and things that will, will bless those that have no advocates and bless those who are clearly on the margins. This is the calling of the church and the good history of the church when the church lives out its calling in the purpose and power of the Lord. But we also know, uh, you, you know, Vicki and I were in the UK. The UK has a lot of churches right now that are barely occupied. And there's memorials and tributes, and America is no different. There's churches here that are barely occupied, as if their best days are behind them. And you know that because the, the seating is still there, the pews are still there, and you look in those churches, and they still retain a lot of their architectural beauty. But where is the sense of the power of the gospel? Where is that being baptized into, the death, into death so that we might have new life and, and communicate that and invite people into that new life? This is a charge on every church. And this is a charge on Holy Trinity. We have the benefit of being a relatively new church. But God requires us and privileges us to be his hands and feet in this area in, in Palo Alto and in Mountain View and in Sunnyvale and in Santa Clara and at Stanford, we're, we're not here just to be kind of a holy club or this is one of the downsides of Anglicanism potentially with, with its rich tradition. We can just kind of hug tradition and lose sight of the fact that tradition is to be used in all its richness for the benefit of the kingdom. That others might come to be baptized as we have been baptized. So Christ is our Savior. God manifests himself through Jesus. Christ our Savior. God manifests himself, second point here, through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who leads. It is Christ who saves. It is the Spirit who leads. Remember the verse that says, And he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, alighting on him. It is the language of anointing. It is the language of equipping. This is what happens. Recall your Old Testament history. When God called David, he had Samuel, what? Anoint him. And Saul before him. Anointing is the sense of saying, God, God is reaching out and he's saying, I have, I have set you apart for a task. And he sets Christ apart for the task of being his Messiah. Jesus is anointed for his ministry. And with that anointing, what does the Holy Spirit do? If you just think about the life of Christ for just a moment, you see that the Spirit leads him. There's not a master plan, apparently, that I can see in Scripture. When you see the, the Lord calling his disciples, I, there's not a huddle. There's no whiteboarding about, you know, okay, we're going to go up to Judea, and then we're going to cross to Samaria, and then we're going to, you know, it's all going to be great. It's up and to the right. He just follows. When, when great things are breaking out, Mark chapter 1, the Lord is healing. People are coming. And like, this is great. We have tons of people. Attendance is off the charts. 
But Jesus says, no, I wasn't made just to heal. I was made to go and preach the kingdom of God. And so we have to go to another town. And we have to be faithful to that call. And so the Lord gives him that. He's leading him. And, the, you know, he's, he's leading. And Christ in his earthly way is following. Now, the, just to be clear, a little disclaimer, if you will. This text presents Jesus as Savior Spirit as the one who anoints and leads, and God is the one who loves. But Jesus is also the one who leads us. Jesus is also the one who, lead, who loves us. God is the one who leads. God is the one who protects. You know, the, to try to, to segment the triune God would not be wise. It would not be particularly helpful. But there is a distinction that is made here. But as we think about God and as Scripture describes the actions of God, it often uses these verbs interchangeably. Describes them to the Lord, describes them to the Father, ascribes them to the Spirit. So we're, he leads the Lord. He protects him. You know, the Spirit of God will protect us just as he protected Jesus. God knew Jesus had to get through those three years of preaching before his time at Calvary would come. There was no premature death, though there were death threats. Remember that Jesus, in, his, in his, the start of his ministry in his hometown, Luke 4, he's going and he's preaching out of Isaiah, and they, they all say great things. He's so great. But then he says, he's, he's in effect saying that I am sent to the Gentiles. He, he uses times where God blessed Gentiles and and then they turn on him. They, they just say this, you know, that to them it was a blasphemy that he would say such things. And they take him to the brow of the hill. They want to throw him off. But if you know how that scripture ends, it says he walked right through them. He walked right through the crowd. Every day that we have on this earth has been foreordained by God before we, any one of us were born. I say that because I don't know if there's people here or people that are listening to this later on who are just overwhelmed by a sense of fear or dread or with all the uncertainties in this life, wonder if somehow God's not in charge or doesn't care about their life. He cared about his son's life every day. He knew what his son would be doing and his spirit led Jesus and guided him and protected him. And finally, it provided Jesus with the wisdom he needed. How else do you know how to answer those that come at you and say, well, I don't like your faith, or I think you're, you're bigoted, or I think you're naive, or trying to trick us in certain ways. I haven't been tricked in a long, in, you know, you have to be in a big spirited debate to kind of find that. But, but remember, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, is it right to pay tithes to Caesar? Trying to trick him. But he had the wisdom about how to respond. Just as a little sidebar, Jesus did not necessarily answer every question that he was asked. He wisely, empowered by the Spirit, would often meet those same things with questions himself. And he says when he's asked about, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Show me a coin. Whose, whose image is on it? We must be wise, shrewd as serpents, and innocent as doves. So the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us, he, just as he led Jesus um, I pray that he, and, and I want us to know that he's leading each of us in our lives today. And it may not seem like it at times. Maybe there's something that you've been struggling with, wrestling with. You're not sure, Lord, how are you actually leading me on these things? 
Can I commend to you kind of a course of prayer? Not that you're not doing it already, but just like double down on it or grab a partner or if you're in a Tuesday or Wednesday night group, uh, ask them specifically for prayer. You will see the Lord respond and to lead us in specific and particular ways according to the plan that he has for you. I'll give you a personal example. When uh, a few years into our marriage, I mean, when Vicki and I got married, we always felt that the Lord was going to call us to have children. And so we thought, okay, well, now is a good time to be praying for children. But it took us a while to have our daughter, Sarah. And it took us, we were praying, but still, no, you know, no pregnancy, no nothing. Pray some more, get friends praying in on this. Eventually, we went and sought some medical consultation to say, you know, is there something, some reason that's prohibiting this? Keep praying. And in the midst of this, God gave me a dream, what turned out to be a prophetic dream. I remember very specifically in the condo that we were in, we're sitting, I'm in the dream, I'm sitting on the edge of our bed. I'm holding in my arms an infant girl with lots of dark hair. And I remembered it because I was very specifically in our bedroom. Sometimes when you dream, at least when I do, it's, you have these like approximate places. It's never like the place that you actually live in. In my case, it was really there. And I, I, I knew when I woke up that this was from God. And I knew it was from God to the point where I actually wrote it down. I'm not much of a journal guy. I really don't write stuff down. But I wrote this down. And I think within about a year or so, I was really sitting on the edge of our bed, holding in my arms, Sarah, who we named, an infant girl with really dark hair. And I can tell you other times where God has allowed that encouragement, sometimes through a dream, but here's the commonalities. It's often in, in response to prayer or being in a community of prayer, and it is um, often in response, it's, it's often prompting people to say things. Like if you're asking for, Lord, which direction, how do I go? What, oftentimes, what, what decision do I need to make? I'm at a fork in the road that's pretty significant. Look for God to speak to you specifically and in particular ways. I think part of the joy of walking with Jesus is there's a particular language. Like you have with a good friend or you have with the spouse. You know, you got your little phrases and your little sayings and they only mean stuff to you two or you three. You know, somebody else comes into that circle like, what are you guys talking about? Well, you know, this is sort of how the Spirit works in my case. So time doesn't permit us to go to God the Father at this point. So I just want to say, Christ our Savior, Christ is the Savior here. The Holy Spirit is the leader. He not only leads us as individuals, but in these days ahead, in 2023, He will be leading very particularly and specifically Holy Trinity. I'm not sure of all the particulars, but he will not stop leading us. He will not stop blessing us, but he does it in response to our prayers, our expectations, our fasting, our sense of crying out to him and saying, Lord, do not waste this congregation who's got such ability and such heart and such desire to see your kingdom grow. I think in the days ahead, we'll be talking about that. But my prayer is that that animates our heart. The surprise at the Jordan is that what people saw was as much for them as it was about Jesus. 
And it was as much for us 2,000 plus years later as it was for them at that time. And my hope is that we really just allow that to sit in our lives, in our hearts, inform our prayers, in, in just kind of grow our expectations, focus our minds, allow us to uh, move in a channel that the Lord says, yeah, this is what it means to be fruitful. This is what it means to know me more. This is what it means to reflect me. This is what it means to be a baptized follower of me. This is what it means to experience the glory of God through the joy and the power and the calling of the church. Amen. Mm-hmm.